Apart Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.R. Levy. And that's at A.R. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and it is just going to be me hosting today. Brown is out, but uh, I think I got this one handled. Our guest today is Nick Sampson, who is a guitar player, songwriter, producer, guitar builder, mixer, and engineer from the Detroit area. Nick is well known for his work with artists such as Polyphia, Born of Osiris, We Came as Romans, Era, and many, many others, but he's especially spotlighted with his band, I Am Abomination. This is one talented dude. We've had him on Nail the Mix. I believe that it was January 2018. It was a phenomenal episode. He's a great guitar player, just all around brilliant. Anyways, I present you Nick Sampson. Well, Nick Sampson, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. How's it going? Good. When's the last time I saw you? Was that January 2018? The the Nail the Mix, huh? In uh, Florida. Yeah. Yeah, that was the last time. January 2018, I believe. Yep. And a lot's happened since then, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. The world is uh, in a different (laughs) place. (laughs) Yeah, it's like we're living in a whole different world. Sure is. It's pretty insane, but you try to, you know, ignore it for the most part. Is that what you've been doing this year? Just ignoring it and doing your thing? Yeah. I mean, when COVID hit at first, I had... I mean, I had a really busy summer planned and it was going to work out sick because I was going to have August off and it was going to be like, oh, I could do whatever I want with my summer for once. (laughs) But then, uh, (laughs) yeah, then all my, all those projects got moved to now. And that's what I'm doing now is like catching up on the stuff that I should have done in the summer. But um, I was fortunate enough to like actually keep the projects, you know, because a lot of people didn't get to, you know, their work didn't just get shifted. It just got canceled. So. That's good. So sounds like you're pretty fucking busy right now. It's a mad dash to the end of the year, pretty much for me. I have like four full links going on and like other mixes and all kind of stuff. So I'm not surprised. Friends of ours I've talked to who also are the nail the mix crowd people and URM podcast people that I've talked to lately, they are all reporting the same thing. So either they basically worked like nuts from March till now, or they had this brief weird rescheduling of a couple months where they got scared and then suddenly, boom, it just like all hit at once. And they're doing like five EPs, eight mastering projects, two (laughs) albums, like, and you know who these people are, you know, they're already busy people. It's like busy by their standards. hundred percent. A lot of people have different standards for being busy. I just did a a record with Will Putney. We co-produced Miss May I. And we're just finishing that up now. But uh, he works every single day. I was about to say, that guy's work ethic is uh, insane. It's wild. I mean, I couldn't do that because I obviously have a family and stuff. So, like, I have to keep time for them and some sanity time for myself. But, like, he is a trooper. He's he's a pretty unique guy. 
So the thing about Will, you know, because we just did that course with him, how it's done and it's not on sale anymore. So, oh boy. So those of you who uh, are going to get interested by what I'm about to say, too bad. You have to <laughs> wait at least a year. Anyways, we did that course with him. I've known him for a long time, but I uh, have never like been in, in his space, like watching him work or anything like that. It's one of those things where when you work with him, you realize that his success is like, not an accident at all. Oh yeah. There's uh, no luck, no accident. That dude is a fucking beast. hundred percent. He's a great guy too. Well, that too. A man who knows what he wants for sure. Man, I really do prefer that. Uh, yeah. I actually, I think that some people are intimidated by people who are super direct and like no bullshit. But honestly, man, I fucking prefer that because there's so much BS in the world and people are so, I don't know, so wishy-washy, so flaky, I guess, that when you find someone who knows exactly what they want, you know, and they're not afraid to tell you what you, what you don't want to hear and they'll just tell you the truth or, you know, what they're looking for. It's great because then you don't have to guess anything. You don't have to like wonder where you stand with them. You don't have to question anything. You just, you know. And that makes it so easy to work with them because you know what they're in it for. And so then you can just make sure they're happy. Oh, yeah. There's no room for a yes man in a producing game for sure. Um, that would just wind up being, you know, the band's pre-pro sounding better at the end of the day. So and you need to like be stern at points for sure. You don't need to be mean to people, but you just need no. to like let them know when something they're doing is wrong, you know, happens all the time. Have you noticed that sometimes people mistake being straightforward with being an asshole? And I don't, I don't mean that people interpret you being straightforward as being an asshole. I mean, some people think to themselves, I'm going to be straightforward and professional. And then they just end up being fucking dicks. And it's like, dude, you're not being straightforward. You're just being a dick. Like, relax. That comes from experience. Like any like straightforward people in their, in their past have probably come off like as a dick to them because if someone critiques you, yeah. For the better, you're going to take offense to it if you're not, you know, ready for that. So the outward appearance of that person just influences your idea of being straightforward. If you're not like, if you don't have meaning behind what you're saying, you're, you, you might just sit think, oh, I just have to be a little bit of a dick about what I say. And then I'm straightforward now. Well, but, I'm speaking from experience because I think I used to be that dick at times, <laughs> but I didn't mean to be. Uh, I just, I just know that like when I was like in my twenties and stuff, um, younger years, I was a fucking savage animal when it came <laughs> to this kind of stuff. And I think that it made people hate me and I didn't understand. I didn't understand. Cause like, it was just telling them the truth. And I was like, you can tell me too. I'm not sugarcoating anything, but over the years, I've realized that as much as I didn't want their emotions to take part in it, because I, I used to think, this was a long time ago, I used to think stuff like, uh, all we're doing is talking about what's wrong so that we can fix it. So they should, they're weak. They should be removing their emotions from it. This mm. is fucking weak ass human behavior. Like, no time for this. But now I realize that it's dumb to think that way because there's no way to remove that from the situation. Like we're humans. Yeah. Um, so you have to, you have to take people's feelings into account. I, I don't mean that you should not tell them the truth or anything, 
But uh, have you seen Interstellar? Oh, yeah. Like, remember the robot that had the honesty setting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they set it to 90%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I thought that that was really, really clever. Oh, yeah. It's a good observation on how, yeah, you need to tell people the truth. How you tell them the truth should probably be tailored to what they can handle. Oh, yeah. Because for sure. the purpose of telling them the truth is to make the situation better. But if you're making the situation worse because of the way that you say it, don't lie to them, but change the way you say it. Oh, yeah. No one's going to listen to you if they think you're out to get them or like just saying things because you don't like them. Like it's it's everyone's different personality at the end of the day. But like coming off as a dick is sometimes can people can just shut you down or like put a wall up between anything coming out of your mouth and going into their ears. You know, so you have to make sure that doesn't happen. But I mean, there's a lot. I haven't come across anyone in the studio really in my experience that has been like unreceptive to what I have to say. Ever? Not even at the beginning? Yeah, for sure they have. I mean, as as time goes on, as my discography gets bigger and bigger, people tend to like, you know, listen to what I have to say a lot more, but I've never had anyone just be like, oh, you're being a you're being a dick and what you're saying is just because you don't like me or this or that. It's more of like a, I don't want to insult you, but that riff's out of key, bro. <laughs> Like sometimes you have to hit them with that or say the truth if you're on the bro level with them. But most most studio clients are. But the thing is, when you say I don't want to insult you, but that riff is out of key, bro, you're taking into consideration who you're talking to. If you knew that they were emotionally unstable or that saying it that way wouldn't solve the problem, I'm sure you'd find another way to go around it. Yeah. You always get the, but I wrote it like that statement in return to that question. Well, you wrote it wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's always the retort. Is it really? I mean, <laughs> if they're crazy enough to say that to me, like they might get something like that back, but with a real nice smile at the end of it. <laughs> Have you noticed at all that guitar players defer to you more? Because as your discography grows, alongside that, people's knowledge of your guitar playing grows too. I think it kind of goes parallel. People know you're a sick guitar player. They also know you're a sick producer. But do you think that with the knowledge of you being a capable guitar player, uh, that that's helped you get the trust of some pretty fucking capable guitar players that you work with? Yeah, I think that is the, the main thing that people's respect for my playing and writing and just listening to what I've done over the years. Like that's that's the one thing that keeps people coming and keeps me busy, to be honest, I think. Uh, for a, a band like Polyphia, for example, they're good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, one of my had to be said. Yeah, best best boys for sure. I bring things to the table for them. Like I come with different ideas for melodies. I come with you know different riff ideas, like arrangement ideas, all these things. And and they they're never really like unreceptive to my ideas because I think that we have a mutual respect for each other as musicians. That we know that okay, if if he's going to be honest to me and if he's saying something that like I'm on the fence about, like, I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to go with what he says because I, I trust him because look, look at what he's done over the years. Like there's definitely, that definitely has an effect in, in produ like producing writing game for sure. When it comes to working with guitar players, like the guys in Polyphia, from your perspective as a guitar player, I'd say has like achieved a virtuosic level of skill. Like when you're dealing with other people who also have achieved that type of skill level in their own right, um, 
What are the kinds of things that you coach out of them? Because I imagine it's not so much like muting, you know, muting <laughs> strings for them or playing the riff for them or yeah. giving them a different pick. I mean, maybe it is, but I imagine that those things that we do as producers, engineers with guitar players, a lot of that stuff, I've, in my experience, those great guitar players already know that stuff. Like they already know to have multiple picks. They like are, mm -hmm. that stuff's done. So what's the kind of stuff that you focus on when you're working with someone great? Uh, it's writing melody a hundred percent of the time, or well, not a hundred percent of the time, most of the time in the studio spent on making the best melody possible, especially with instrumental music, because really that's, that's all you got as far as like the, the focal point short of shredding the entire time and just being technical about it. Um, it's melody. It's moving somebody with the melody that you're playing and one note, you know, difference can make it the world a difference. So a lot of that, like um, Polyphia records our own guitars. They record themselves. So I don't have to worry about that. So what, like my role with them is more of like a, a helping to write and uh, arrangement and helping with like the, the drums and all that. So, so how does that work? Like you work on pre-pro with them, then they record themselves and they come back and you're like, man, all those solos suck. Redo them. <laughs> what are you trying to do? I'm just no, kidding. I no, doubt no. that's the yeah. case. I'll give advice if I think something's like too, too much, but I think Tim is like, he's got that on lock. He thinks that, uh, he's got a, a, a brilliant musical mind when it comes to that. Like he doesn't want to, he wants to move their band forward. He doesn't want to get stuck in the, the shred loop. You know, he wants to to be like as big as possible as an instrumental guitar band. He wants to make guitar cool again, which is something that just keeps driving him to do new things. And a lot of the time, you know, tame it down from some of their past stuff. Like, I, I think the there's like a paradigm shift in like what is what is good with instrumental guitar music it, it used to be just like oh wow can shred 1000 million notes per per square meter that's amazing but now it's wow that melody that he played and the way he bent that note and the control he has over that melody is just moving me so i think we're in that stage or getting close to being in that stage which is just moving it closer to like a you know like a pop kind of realm like a pop structure, like a pop song is a simple chord progression with a, an amazing melody. And we try to do the same thing, but, you know, also keep guitar like the focus of it. Yeah. So I guess when it comes to players like that, do you kind of feel like it's not that you've got nothing to add, but like, you know, the producer's job adjusts to who the client is, right? Like it's not one size fits all. You can't just do the same thing with every project. Like it's got to be what was required. Oh, yeah. So like what <laughs> that it would comes be easy. To, yeah, <laughs> right. Anyone could do it at that point. But not I mean anyone could do it within reason at that point. Yeah. If, so with players like that, do you kind of feel like, well, there's kind of not much for me to add when it comes to the actual playing stuff. Like got that mm -hmm. shit on lock. Let's focus on the deeper stuff. Yeah. It's more about structure. It's more about melody, you know, keeping keeping your head bobbing, like making sure the drums aren't like off meter unnecessarily trying to translate their vision in the way that they want it tons of ways you can go about it but at the end of the day you're there to help them make their vision come true yeah it just so happens that on those projects the physical side of it isn't 
as big of a deal because they're yep. like athletes. Yeah. Yeah. They're shred athletes for sure. Since this podcast is for guitar players, I think something cool that we could talk about is uh, what guitar players who aren't at that level, because let's face it, like very few people are on Tim's level, though a lot of people aspire to be and will one day reach that level. A lot of people aren't. And that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be making recordings or going to the studio or anything like that. So let's talk about how you deal with guitar players who aren't there and what you wish that they would do to get prepared. Like, you know, if you had a, if you were able to influence all the, I guess your average guitar player who's going to come record with you, if you were to be able to get in their head six months in advance so that they would really, really be able to prepare, like were the kinds of stuff that you would want them to work on. Like if you actually had your way and they actually listened. There's a million variables. How you hold your pick, what angle that's at. Is it chirping when it hits the string? Are you putting too much pressure on the strings at the bridge? Are you sharpening the notes before they get a chance to even come out of your pickups? There's a there's a million things. I would in a recording fashion, the main thing is to practice. You know, get get your parts 100% to where you can play through any riff, any given riff with ease. Cuz with recording, it's you can't edit everything to be 100%. Like you can cut corners and and edit if you have to and do like lots of time stretching and stuff. But all of that comes if with you the, have to. Yeah, it comes with the penalty. And it's technology isn't 100% there yet to give you like a stretch a quarter note to a half note and be able to not tell the difference. It's just not there yet. It's like there's band-aids and then there's like, oh, he recorded this whole front half of this song perfect, but flubbed a note. Like that's that's easy to fix. But you don't want to lean on the edits to kind of to to make the guitar sound because as close as you can get it as it's coming out of the pickups to be sent into the amp that's that's where you want it because that's what it's going to sound natural and not be you know fake sounding so real quick though about the chirping and the the pick angle that's a big one what i have found is that a lot of guitar players are just unaware that they do those things so what i what i've noticed is Here's a scenario that has happened to me many times. I have gotten a guitar player who tells me they're doing everything that we said, like say in this Andrew Wade guitar course we did where, you know, told them, you know, how to mute the guitar right, how to like, how to decide which pick to use, what angle, where, where to mute, all that stuff. And it still sounds like shit and they don't understand. And then they'd send me like a video of them playing and also recording. And it's like nowhere close to what we said. So like, of course it doesn't, you're not getting those results. You're not actually doing that. And that same person I'm thinking of then came to the URM summit and, uh, Andrew Wade took him on stage and like moved his pick like a millimeter from his normal position. And it, the problem was solved. I guess my point is that, uh, the hard part for people on their own is the awareness of what they're doing. How do you suggest that they get better about that you just kind of have to come to terms with uh what you're doing is wrong so you're hearing a problem you're hearing a chirp but you think that you've got the right pick angle obviously you don't have the right pick angle yeah i mean it's mel it's muscle memory too like imagine if like you you learned you spent your whole life learning how to drive and then someone comes along and says no you're not driving right you're not doing this right and if you if you continue to not do this you're gonna you know ruin your car or whatever your car is going to drive like shit or something. It's 
like we have built-in muscle memory to where we think, okay, I hold the pick like this because that's how my brain knows how to do it. And the angle of which I twist my wrist is that's how I get contact in the string. But when you tell someone to twist the pick, you know, 20 de- at a 20 degree angle or something, they're going to be like, oh, I can't do that. Like, I can't even play like that. And when they're in the hot seat in the studio and they're just like, uh, what do I do? You know, it's, it becomes a problem. So being, yeah, being aware of that is, is just as simple as, you know, swallowing your pride, really. Just make sure that like, it, I, there's things that I do still that are, you know, not perfect technique wise. And when it comes to like getting in and recording, I'm like, oh, wow, shit. Yeah, I better, I better fix that. I have to sit there for, you know, 20 minutes and work on it. All right. Let's just say you're in that scenario where you realize that something in your technique is not what it should be. What does the sit there for 20 minutes and fix it mean when you go do it? Usually it's because I don't get a chance to play guitar as much as I'd like to. And I'm just a little rusty and I have to work the kinks out, you know, and get that muscle memory back, get that movement loaded back into my brain ram. Mm -hmm. So it's there for me to reach for and grab immediately rather than like, oh, that's how I do that. So you need to have it like fresh in your mind and get it in there. And like, there's like alternate picking things I was running into doing the latest I'm Abomination album because some of those songs are just hard to play. (laughs) Like (laughs) I usually write things on uh, Guitar Pro first and then I don't give a shit about how hard it sounds. I want it to sound cool. So, and then I'll learn about how to play it later. And then that's that's the struggle when it comes into recording. I'm like, oh, okay, this this is a too fast alternate pick. Let's switch to economy. Let's you know get that loaded back up in your brain and lean on that technique that I I used to know so well and just bring it back up. Usually, like if you've practiced it enough in the past, like you'll pick it back up. It's not gonna you're not gonna never be able to do it again. It's just you have to kind of like come to terms with it. Like, oh, maybe I'm not as good with this thing as I once was. Like, I I better, you know, work on it. Back when I used to play eight hours a day and didn't record 18 bands a month. And pay bills and have a kid and be married. It's it's crazy. So there's two things that you brought up right now that I want to talk about. I'm going to mention them both so that we don't forget. Number one, I want to talk about how you manage your time because you have kept up with your guitar playing, but I know you can't play as much as you used to. So I want to talk about that because a lot of people listening, uh, they might not be in your situation with the recording career, Mm -hmm. but you know, they have families, they have a day job, they record too, and they want to get good at guitar and have their own projects and do all those things. And the balancing it all is tough. But before that, I want to hear your case for Guitar Pro because I've talked a lot of shit about Guitar Pro and people who write in Guitar Pro. However, like I do believe that there's no rules in music. All right. So like when I've talked shit about people who write in Guitar Pro, obviously I'm not talking about you. Like I'm talking about, I'm talking about people who write things that don't make any sense on the instrument because they haven't really worked enough on the instrument. So they're just making something that they think sounds cool. Then they get to the studio and it's like literally impossible to play or just feels weird. Um, and it's not musical at all. And, uh, I've felt like when I've encountered that scenario, like they're missing, it's like missing some musicality or something. However, I would never say that about you. So I want to hear more about your approach and how you actually make that music. Well, for me, like 
I started using Guitar Pro when I was probably like 14. And I started playing when and I was how 12. old are you now? I'm 30. Okay, so a good half your life. Guitar Pro more. 3, baby. Back in the day, OG. So I would, you know, play my Van Halen riffs, whatever. Like, learn all that stuff. But when it came to writing stuff, I didn't really have a means to record it at that point. So... I had like a little GNX3 workstation that I could record like 30 seconds on, but that just wasn't enough. So short of, you know, getting an, an inter interface and like preamps and all that stuff set up for my computer, I I found Guitar Pro and I was like, wow, I can, I, I know how to do tabs. So like I, it's reverse. You can read the tabs, you can write the tabs. So like you figure it out. And Guitar Pro actually taught me a lot of what I know about rhythm. You know, because they have this really cool feature where if you don't fill a bar out with the proper amount of, you know, rhythmic notes, it just turns red. And it and that space clean lets you know that you fucked up and you better fix it because it's going to, you know, play like shit when you play the song. So there's teaching qualities about it for sure. But being able to actually, like, take my idea and program it out and listen to it and be like, oh, OK, cool. And then how do I harmonize this? And instead of, like recording and then looping over and trying to figure out harmonies like I, I was able to do it in a computer and that taught me like a lot of things about harmony and how to you know make sure that your finger placements are going to be right and all that and it's it's a tool for me it's it's more of like a, I can sit down in 30 minutes and come up with a whole a whole shred verse like a whole cool thing because I have this idea in my head and I want to you know, like get it out as fast as possible and put it on some kind of wax that I can then go back to. And like a lot of the time I'll write stuff on Guitar Pro and then I'll change it before it's recorded. Because mm -hmm. like you said, sometimes like I'll, I'll like mis do a mistake and like, oh, maybe I can't tap this. This is like kind of too crazy of a pattern. So I'm going to, I'm going to change it up or, or vice versa where I have something too not intricate enough in Guitar Pro. And then I, I bring it back. So you can't lean on it as like, Oh, the guitar pro is how it is. Like you can't, you can't just say this is how it's going to be. You have to work on it afterwards as well, or else, like you said, there will be a weird vibe when it comes to it because you don't play music the way you program music. Programming is just to get it on, like get it out of my brain into my hard drive, ready to work on later. You're always taking into consideration that there's going to be most likely a step between the guitar pro and the version that's getting recorded. Yes. An adaptation step, basically. Yeah, because like it's for finger economics and everything. There's like, I have a certain style. I like to keep my fingers within a certain range so that I can, I'm not like reaching all the time because the, I mean, there's octaves of shit everywhere on a guitar. You can find some other way to play anything. So you can just make it easy for you to play so that you can, you know, play it efficiently. And then that way you're, your records are going to sound better. You're going to sound better live. You're going to, you're going to have like more confidence in what you're doing because you're not struggling to play this thing that you programmed, you know, in an octave away on different strings when you could have just played it four frets apart on the string above it, you know? Yeah. Okay. So that's where I think a lot of people go wrong is they don't factor that step into things. And actually the way you're saying it makes a lot of sense because one of the things that uh, I always felt was way too slow about traditional writing with a guitar is trying to change things or the time it takes to just record something that you're writing. It can slow you down. So this seems to me like you figured out a way to basically 
vomit the idea out than rearrange it. Yeah, 100%. However it needs to be. Yeah, you need to you need to be able to refine it outside. And I don't write every song in Guitar Pro. Sometimes I, I just, I'm riffing on something and I'm like, all right, let's bring the doll up and I'll, I'll, you know, shitty riff it out, make like whatever sloppy rendition that I first do, put it in there and then start adding chord progressions under it and drums and everything. And I mean, to me, it's kind of the same process as Guitar Pro, but I don't have to have a guitar in my hands for a guitar pro. I can do it on a laptop in my bed if I want, really. So um, it's two different two different vibes. But at the end of the day, like on the, the past I Am Abomination record, probably half of it was written in Guitar Pro and half of it was written just sitting in front of my computer, just riffing. So there's no tried and true way for me to like, this is my process. Like I just, whatever I'm feeling at that point in time, I'll do. But if it's something like, a little more intricate i might bust out guitar press so i don't waste time on like different harmonies and stuff because in guitar pro it's it's absolute like you're if you're trying to like sh- like do shreddy stuff in a certain tempo and it's too fast you can pull up like either 16th notes 16th triplets and listen to it and be like okay that's that sounds stupid <laughs> that's way too fast i'm just gonna focus back on my 16ths rather than like trying to get it on the guitar and blaming your technique and technical abilities on not being able to make it sound good you can hear it played perfectly i mean rather it's like midi instruments but that shit sounds like real music to me when i'm writing (laughs) it's just a way of like trial and error for me one of the dumbest things that uh bad lead guitar players would do when recording one of the things i hated the most was uh and this is not because they're progressive guitar players or anything but like you know 17 16th notes (laughs) <laughs> you know, in a bar, that sort of thing. And I don't mean a bar of 17, 16. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'll fight you on it too. They're like, no, yeah. dude, I wrote it like that. <laughs> it, it's like, they don't know what they wrote. That's the thing. Or have you ever worked with someone that plays something that changes every single time? It's probably been a minute. I'm, I'm sure that, I have. That's from my early days. Like, yeah. That's, those are the local band recording days. But like, I, specifically remember working with people who would play the riff differently every single time. Mm-hmm. The vibe guys. <laughs> yeah. should drive me fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah. Double that, please. Uh, something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I, having a, a way that it's set in stone really, really helps. Now you just said that people should learn how to play everything on their record. And I agree, but how does that factor in, when you want to change something, does that make it harder to change things for you? Like say that they practiced every single part and know everything and like work their asses off. So they're kind of, it's not just that they're muscle memory, they're, they're gotta be a step more attached to it. I mean, you can't come into the studio being overly attached to anything really. If you're, I mean, if you're there, you're there for a reason, you're there for guidance, you're there to make your thing, your record better. So to, to just like dismiss it as, you know, not a good idea, but getting the muscle memory down in your, in your picking hand and in your fretting hand and knowing, okay, I have to use my pinky to hit this note because if I don't, then I can't hit this note with my ring finger, you know, and like, you wouldn't know that if you didn't practice and you would sit there and just flub it a million times in the studio if you didn't know that. So there's, there are things to, you know, a big thing is finger economics for me. Like you need to know which finger needs to hit which note in order for you to hit the next note. Getting that down is 
that's what practice for me like is is for like i have to i have to know where my fingers are going and if if a note changes or something changes then you know so be it then i i can kind of apply the same like muscle memory and finger placement to the next thing that we're doing and if it's like a complete like oh this riff is not happening then yeah that's a different story that i mean you might have wasted a little time on that but oh well. everyone does yeah, yeah. oh well like get, your record's get better it. now <laughs> yeah it's like this weird thing where if you work so hard on a part or something, then it gets cut. It's like this feeling of like, well, did I just waste all that time? In my opinion, no. And th this has happened to me too. When my band went and recorded with a really awesome producer, I had quite a few things that I worked my ass off on cut. And there was that feeling like, uh, so did I just waste a month on that part of that song? No, I didn't waste a month. I had to write that part in order to get to the next part that was kept. And uh, and it's not like I got worse for practicing it or something. Yeah, stepping stones. Yeah. Learning what not to do is almost as important as learning what to do because you wouldn't know one without the other. So you have to kind of keep that in mind when it comes to, like, e there's no room for egos in, in writing music. And it just, some people's, you know, tons of ego, but. You can't, like, you have to be receptive to other ideas and the fact that maybe what, when you were writing that day, it just didn't happen. You know, it wasn't good enough and it can be way better. And that's what we all strive to do is to do better. So you have to kind of keep that in mind. Can't have an ego at all. It's hard though, because you need ego in some ways to give you the confidence to pursue music in the first place yeah confidence is is a big thing even with production like you could be the best mixer in the world but you know your first draft of your mix could be like amazing and then you're unconfident so you just keep fucking with it until you ruin it like it's it's happened to me in the past before where i've just it's been, happened to me i've had to just strip everything i'm doing and just start over because i'm like okay like but that's you know, someone with a giant ego wouldn't do that you know they would just keep it shitty <laughs> <laughs> it's weird though man because like you need some, it's just weird how much is just enough. Cause if you have no ego, you're not going to have the confidence to even try, or you're not going to see the point in even trying. You're not going to feel like I have something to contribute to the world in this. Like I'm worthy of doing this. Like I should go for it. You know, those are important feelings to, to have without ego. You won't have those. However, then there's the point where it's too much. Mm hmm where you don't listen to anybody else. You think that basically you're God's gift to music and, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> and not, and not, you don't see any flaws in yourself. Been across quite a few of those. Yes. Haven't we all? So yeah. it, it's weird. It's, it's tough because you need to have just the right amount of ego. Mm -hmm. No one's saying just to like be the, the, you know, the most modest person in the world, but. Or a pushover. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's no good in the studio either. So the fine balance is where it's at, for sure, like you said. I think awareness, man, back to awareness. I think self-awareness is the key. Self-awareness is what will allow you to realize that what you're doing sucks or not, basically. Yeah, yeah, true. And with a guitar guitar playing, production, anything like that, that's that's a major factor. There's a lot of psychology behind all this stuff. And sometimes like you would run into producers that have psych psychology degrees and you're like, well, why? But oh, it makes sense. You're like, okay, yeah, I get it. All right. Let's talk about scheduling and time management. So 
I imagine when you were 14, you played guitar a lot. I didn't leave my basement from eighth grade till probably the end of 10th grade. That's what I think teenagers should do if they want to do music mm-hmm. um, for real when they're older they should take those high school years and practice their fucking asses off. Get as good as humanly possible during those years. Yeah. I mean, if I wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't, you know, have paved a career for myself because the guitar single-handedly did that for me. It led me everywhere I needed to go to do what I do. So, I mean, I think I, I had friends that were, you know, hanging out, partying, doing whatever. And I did my fair share of that too. I wasn't just like a complete square, but I, I made sure that I just practiced my guitar. Like I wanted to be proficient at the guitar and I wanted to be able to play like BT Bam and I wanted to be able to play like Eddie Van Halen and all these people that I listened to and just made me feel something, you know, made me feel like, oh my God, like that is amazing. I need to learn how to do that. So what would you work on back in those days in the, in the basically Blitzkrieg days? For a while, it was it was really just learning other songs. So it would be pick, you know, the craziest song to learn and then do that. And a lot of that was like, when I was younger, it would be Metallica. It would be um, Van Halen. It would be, I wasn't into like the mainstream metal when I was younger. I was more into like what my dad liked and what I had heard my whole life. So I I worked my way through the eighties and some of the nineties on the guitar stuff. But then, then like I would find videos on people like Paul Gilbert and Steve Vai and stuff. And I would just, be like how is he even doing that as it would just kind of be this mountain for me like at the top of the mountain is playing like paul gilbert and i'm at the bottom like oh my god this is how am i going to scale this and i mean you'll you'll scale that mountain your whole life but the thing is is you have to like try you have to get in there and like give it what you have research all you can about the techniques that they're using to do what they're doing but you have to like practice it and get it going or else you're not gonna you're just gonna be in a stuck in a rut it's not going to just materialize. You won't advance. You, you'll you just, you'll stay the same. You'll get proficient at what you do. But if you don't take yourself outside your comfort zone regularly, then you're not going to advance. But there are like times when, you know, like on earth, when I think Failure, that song Failure has the crazy art, like sweepy arpeggio intro. I listened to that song or, or my friend Zach showed me that song and I was like, fuck that, that's impossible. <laughs> I remember telling him that, like, that's fake. And then that's because I didn't know that, you know, you could sweep pick. I didn't know any of that. I didn't know what the hell that was. Once I learned what it was, I'm like, oh, that's that's a minor shape. And yeah, that's fine. And But at one point I was like, that's impossible. Totally reject that idea. I will never entertain the idea that that is real. <laughs> and then interesting. I educate myself a little bit and then I'm like, oh, I was being an asshole. I mean, that that can happen to anybody. So at some point, did your focus shift from just learning some songs to actually drilling techniques? Or was it always in the context of song? Yeah. Right about the time BT Bam came out, I was like, okay, I need to learn what they're doing. And then that's where the sweet picking came out. That's when the alternate picking came out. And then there were websites like cyberfret.com. That was like a big one when I was young they would just post like technique stuff and like, okay, here's what alternate picking is. Here's what economy picking is. Here's what sweet picking is. And they would give you kind of like little exercises, but really all I needed to know was this technique is what's used to make this sound. My first guitar I ever had, my grandfather bought it, but it was a bass. 
because I was like, I went to the pawn shop and I said, what makes the, you know, sound? And of course, this dude only had a bass. So he's like, oh, it's the bass for sure. Here, take it. That'll be $200. Sold my grandpa on it real quick. But then I found out, okay, the bass doesn't make that noise. So I need to get a guitar. And, you know, if you're if you're ill-educated on something, you can make a rational decision or, you know, just completely swear something off because you're not educated on it. So let's talk about the actual practice regimen. So you're educating yourself on these things that BT BAM do, which are very uh, proper techniques, like real theory, real techniques, like music school stuff. I, I don't know if they went to music school, but they're a very music school band, very educated sounding. They go off the wall in a good way. Yeah. There's a fucking fish. They put a fish on the Alaska album. <laughs> that blew my mind. You know, the, the little fish instrument that you rake with a piece of wood? Uh-huh. That There's one on there in multiple spots, I think. Triangles. Like, they, they just don't give a shit. They'll just make anything they want, but it'll be badass because it's BT Bam. It's not done in a haphazard sort of way. Like, it's very proper. And I mean that in a good way. Like, real musicians or something. All right, so you're researching their stuff new techniques like how did you go about picking those up did because i'm sure that once you start researching them you realize there's like 19 different things you need to learn uh just to be able to play one song did you go like one new thing at a time like i'm gonna just learn how to sweep pick so i'm so next three months nothing but sweep picking eight hours a day or did you do what like people like west do which is like break it into into like 30 minutes of this, 30 minutes of that, 30 minutes of that, 30 minutes of that. Like, how did you structure your practice? Well, I had to learn the techniques first. So I would go on like a kick, like, okay, this month I'm, I'm really getting my alternate picking down. Um, or this month I'm focusing on sweeping or this month I, I want to know the chord shapes because I want to know, like there's three main shapes for an arpeggio, major or minor, three each, whatever. Could be more, but for me, there's three. What's the third? Well, it's just a position. Like if okay. you look, if you look at a guitar from the fretboard from the top view, and you see the dots, you know there's mm-hmm. there's a position that you can play, and that that would be minor. If you move it up one fret, it's you know instead of D minor now it's D sharp minor, and mm-hmm. that follows through the entire guitar as long as you don't move the strings that it's at. And there are three main ones of those. So there's like the main shape, and then there's like the barred shape, and then there's the the stretchy shape that goes up top. But I learned those, and then I realized, okay, well, I can put these, take these shapes and move them to whatever fret, and they're always going to work because the guitar is a linear instrument. You know, there's exceptions to that. But, like, once I learned that, I said, okay, I can actually write this stuff now because I know that I've played this shape when I've learned the Alaska intro. You know, I've, I've played this shape when I learned the failure sweep intro. So now I can actually do my own thing and, like, replicate that. So I would spend a lot of time learning the techniques themselves first, like sweeping. And then I would spend a lot of time learning, okay, I need substrate to sweep. So I would learn the pattern. And then I would, you know, alternate picking. There's, okay, I don't fuck with four note runs. A lot of people do. I just don't. That was one of the things I swore off, like where I was talking about earlier. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, that's not for me. I'm not doing it. So I taught myself how to, you know, hit the next note in the scale on the other string rather than just doing four on one because that just freaks me out. <laughs> yeah, there's there's tons of practice regimens that I used to keep, but the main thing is to just keep drilling it, keep 
teaching your brain how to move your hand. I mean, there are times when I would, I used to alternate pick with my elbow, you know, like really Kirk Hammett style, you know, just get at it. But that's not effective. It's not really efficient to do it that way. I mean, wrist movement is... There's a ceiling on where you can take that, yeah. Exactly. And if you're trying to like do that on every single string, like your elbow is going to, it's not, you can't, you know, the motor function in your elbow isn't as good as in your wrist. So you need to actually like realize that and, you know, come to terms with it. But eventually through practice, that'll happen. Did you record yourself at all? By the time I got to be like 15, yeah, I, um, I had got like a, a nice Pentium 4 computer. Fuck yeah. Sound Blaster sound card. Shout out. And that had a quarter inch input. I so I could play. Yeah. I think, yeah. Don't, didn't we all? All of us <laughs> in this age range definitely had one of those. But yeah, it had a quarter inch guitar input. So I had Cool Edit Pro. That was my first one, first DAW. And I would, I figured out how to get the guitar in there. And I had like this little Fender practice amp that I would put this cheap ass Radio Shack mic in front of and just record right into Cool Edit Pro. And I would do my guitar ideas like that. And I did some funny shit, like listening back on it. It's so funny now, but it's cool because I mean, that was my first instance of recording music and learning how to write it and learning like, wow, I can, I can really, you know, impress people with some of this stuff if I keep working at it. So I definitely never stopped doing it after that. Like it was always, I started recording probably 15 years old and I, 15 years later, I'm doing it as a career. So Recording yourself is definitely important because you can't rewind a live performance, but you can rewind a recorded one and you can zoom in on it and see how far you're off. You know, are are you ahead of the beat? Are you behind the beat? Are you rushing your second pick? Are you keeping up? Is your tremolo picking even or are you slowing down because you're tired? You need to work on your, your muscles a little more if that's the case. Like recording yourself is so important as a guitar player that's trying to advance. When you got the sound blaster would you record shit that you were practicing like i'm working on this sweep i'm gonna record it and analyze what the fuck i just did yeah not until not until the point where like vst amp sims came out or like even like a pod thing like vibe yeah i understand yeah it's probably it was probably a little tough yeah because you can't see the waveform when it's like the shit ass radio shack mic (laughs) hugged up on a fender combo you can like definitely you can listen to it though and say like oh well that that isn't right that doesn't sound like my favorite guitar player and you compare yourself against other people and then like having it on wax is just a really important thing because you could think you're the best there are people out there right on facebook now that <laughs> think they're amazing but and, yes. and people gas them up and and it, it's kind of sad to me but it's great whatever they're having fun um but they'll just like do mindless shit. And I'm like, God damn, but they're going for it. And they think they're sick. I, I can see it in his face. I, you're sick, man. But I mean, you don't want to wind up, you know, being one of those. You don't want to become a meme. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be memed. Unless you're Leonardo DiCaprio or something. Oh, that meme is great. Yeah, that's, the yeah, best one. that's fine. If you're Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio, it's fine. It reminds me of something that my uh, dad told me. I remember he uh, came to watch my band play, local band in high school. And we played a show where we drew like a hundred people. It was a lot for me being 15 years old. Oh yeah. And uh, it was like a banging show. There were like, there's a wall of death and stage divers. And it was, it was actually pretty cool. Um, We kicked ass. 
we blew everybody else off the stage and uh, I was proud of it. And I went up to him and I was like, what did you think? Weren't we great? He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like, what do you mean? And uh, he said, it's just the same three chords over and over and over again. I was like, yeah, but did you hear the other bands? And he's like, who cares about the other bands? Why are you comparing yourself to the worst bands on earth? What would you sound like compared to the best bands? And I was like, oh, mm -hmm. you're right. What would I sound <laughs> like compared to the best bands? Like shit. Yeah. And so from that point on, I learned to not compare myself to people and then do it in a way to where I want to kill myself. But yeah, for the sake of being honest, if I want to be doing something at a super high level, well, where do I stand compared to people who are doing it at a high level? Um, is my stuff on par or not? And if it's not, let's uh, work harder. If you want to do stuff at a high level, don't compare yourself to people who are doing it at a low level and say, I'm better than them. I'm doing settled, great. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't mean anything. Definitely. You got to strive for greatness. If you're, if you want to be great, you have to be better. I mean, by the time that you get to the point where you can be hanging with them, shit is going to be advanced to the point where like, if you get as good as X guitar player in 2002, by the time 2004 comes around, you're ready to like be the guy. 10 other people have already just surpassed guitar player X and you're now you're back in the same boat. So you have to strive to be better at all times. If that's what you want to do. I mean, people have different goals. I'm assuming people listening to this podcast want to do that. Okay. Well, yeah, definitely. For the most part. Challenge yourself. Write stuff yeah. out of your ability. Like, if you don't do that, then you're never going to progress. That's why Guitar Pro is so cool sometimes, because you can write something that's just astronomically seems out of reach, but you'll realize that if you're capable enough, you, you put enough time into it, then it's not out of reach. And you just climbed a hurdle you know, that you set for yourself. Was there a point where you started to hear your recordings back and you're like, all right, it's starting to sound like a real guitar player? Yeah. First band I was ever in, I did like a talent show band in eighth grade. I, that, was, that was fun. Yeah, that was really fun. But like my, my first street, like serious band that I was in, we played, we were playing shows, like people would record us and stuff. And that was like right at the time where, it was 2006 or something. So people were like, oh, you got to rock out. Do you got to look like, you know, Alexis on fire when you're up there? And I was like, oh, cool. So I would, you know, work on that, but not realizing I was just shitting up my guitar the whole time. It was sounding like butthole. And then our friends would be there recording it and I'd hear it back and go, oh, my God. <laughs> like, I sounded like that. So, yeah, that, that that was humbling for sure. Stuff like that humbled me a lot. And as far as, like, hearing myself and sounding like a real guitar player i still don't i don't get that really i just good yeah i write and i try to improve on the last thing that i had done and i try to make sure that what i'm doing is satisfying to myself but you never get that i've arrived feeling yeah you you don't you don't get it yeah good i think that that's actually like really really key to never get that feeling which yeah, it's, in some ways is disappointing but at the same time it's crucial because if you get that I've arrived feeling, then what? Yeah, then you just, you float and wait for someone to pass you. Which is exactly what will happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're saying that basically in the earlier years, you know, you had the time to basically throw yourself into these techniques and just keep going until, until you had them. Mm -hmm. But uh, as you got older, you're recording more and more and more. That's actually becoming a career. 
Now you have a family. I know that we're talking about over a decade gap. How did your practice schedule evolve? Like, how do you, I know that you can't possibly play guitar as much now as you used to, but at the same time, it's not like you can just let it slip. So how do you keep it up? By the nature of what I do as a producer, I, like I always going to have a guitar in my hands almost every day. So I'm never going to, it's never going to like become unfamiliar to me, but um, there are times where I don't sit on my off time and just play guitar. Like I don't do that now. Like I have, I'm too busy to like get in there and like practice and stuff. But when it comes time to do like an I'm abomination record, I have to kind of like smack myself and say, Hey, you need to like get your chops up and spend some time on this. So back when I was, you know, a teenager, I could, I could practice hours a day, no problem. And cause I had nothing else to do. I had nothing to do. Like I didn't have to make sure that, you know, I, I went to work so that I could pay my bills. Like I live with my parents. Like that's the that that is the blossoming time. I mean, I'm not saying like someone in a position where they live on their own can't progress, but if you have the opportunity to like be living at home and not have a lot of like fiscal responsibility and everything, you need to like use that time if you wanna progress. Like practice then because once you're older it's it's a little harder because you have, you know, in my case you have a child, you have a marriage, you have really demanding day job. And it definitely gets to the point where you're like, okay, like I'm going to have to touch this thing before my calluses go away. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want that. I mean, I try to try to keep it like, I don't like to burn myself out on it, but I like to just randomly, you know, pick up the guitar and then I'll be sitting there for four hours and play it. And that's like, okay, cool. Keep yourself in love with it. So do you kind of consider what you do now to be like, I guess like outcome oriented practice? Like, so you got eye abomination. It's going to record. You have songs to learn. So you're going to sit down and make sure that you have that down. Or is it more like general stuff? It's a per project thing for me. Like I'm Abomination was just a really big one because it had been so long since I had to dive in and write hundreds of riffs and melodies and everything and like make sure that they're top tier and always try to, you know, outdo the last thing that I did. So like I had to sit and be like, oh shit. <laughs> I, got, I really have to dig into this and, and make sure this is good. There, there was there was a struggle for there for a minute, like getting my fingers back to the point where I felt comfortable, you know, tracking and everything. Let's talk a little bit about what you do in order to actually get the cobwebs off. Because, you know, like uh, I think a lot of people listening to, and this has happened to me, have had to take breaks from guitar. Like I remember sometimes I'd do these stretches where, record an album, like my band's album, and then immediately go into a touring cycle or something and then get home and have like two weeks off or like three weeks off or a month, whatever it is. But like after like four months of like fucking pedal buried RPMs at a thousand, last thing you want to do is play guitar. But, you know, metal is kind of like an Olympic sport, I feel like. And if you go too long, like little things like down picking, for instance, yeah, that shit disappears. Like <laughs> it, if you go too long without doing it, like it goes away. Your calluses do go away. That's regardless of genre. But like, yes, things like down picking, there's only so long you can go without down picking stuff at tempo for long enough where it just starts to like, you know, it's out the window. And Arnold doesn't lift as much as he used to for sure. No, you have exactly. To, you have to condition yourself. And 
like as, if it's a physical thing that you're doing, you can bet that there's a physical thing in your body that you need to strengthen to make it happen. And if you don't keep up with it, then you're in trouble. Yeah. So how do you brush the cobwebs off? Like, is there a routine or you just start playing the end? Well, to this point, I mean, I've spent years and years and years on technique. Like as far as technique goes, like I've dabbled in a little of everything. So I don't have to like teach myself technique as much anymore, but I'm not to say that's not important. I just know it, most of it already. Um, until something new like slapping comes along and thumping, I'm just like, oh shit. I had to learn some of that from the Polyphia stuff. And that was like playing guitar left-handed for a minute there. We made it happen. I would really just like get into my guitar profiles and just start riffing on that and being like, oh man, I suck. I suck. And then just keep going, keep going. And then like, oh, that wasn't that hard. I don't suck as bad as I thought. Yeah. <laughs> keep going until, a you, little less. until you suck less. Yeah. Because no one's perfect. You can be way better if you just keep keep at it and keep drilling it. Try not to let your brain get in the way. I've always thought that it's not that you get better at guitar, you just suck less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's half empty, half full way to look at it. Yeah. Funnier. Well, always going to suck to some point, to yeah. some degree. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Let's switch topics. I want to talk about a little bit about the guitar building thing and setups. In case people don't know, Nick builds guitars and very well. Um, and so, yeah, on top of being a guitarist and producer and engineer, you also know how to make these things. And I think it's safe to assume that having the instrument at its peak level of playability is super important to you. Oh, yeah. As a guitar player and a producer. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about common things that guitar players miss about setups in regards to getting ready for the studio or shit, even playing live, whatever. Just like common things that guitar players overlook when it comes to having their guitar as playable as possible yeah i mean there are there are things like so for example action everyone's obsessed with low action i mean i don't speak for everybody but most people want a low action because they don't want the guitar to get in their way for the studio it's not it's not the best idea to have super low action because the way that a guitar is made there's a price you pay yeah you you pay for with fret buzz and what happens with fret buzz you put energy into the string and then the string, if the string is buzzing on a different fret, it's disturbing the wave. So it's going to change the sound and it's going to affect the sustain and it's going to affect like almost everything. So high, higher action is cool to kind of practice with. Don't do it at the bridge. Like a lot of people adjust the action at the bridge. That's, that's cool. Like it's good more for setting the radius for me of the strings, but um, back your trust, not trust route off a little bit, like let the strings pull the neck up a little bit and then get used to that because I always set up guitars with a little bit more relief than, you know, you'd be doing live or something like that in the studio. Cause it's not like a huge difference, but if you have tons of buzz, it's going to be a problem for sure. That that's just action intonation. Learn how to intonate your guitar. I mean, you have to <laughs> guitar is already yeah. imperfect. <laughs> like it's not, it's not perfect. Like that's been proven. Like in order for frets to be straight, you make a compromise with the instrument. If you've ever seen a true temperament fretboard, like that's the natural position of where the note should lie. They look insane. Yeah, it looks like a fucking being a spaghetti that someone threw. Or on the like table. a Dali painting or something. Yeah, but like in order to be perfectly pitch accurate, the frets have to look like that because music is man-made. You know, our temperament is man-made. We we decided that we're gonna take four forty and an octave of it and divide it into twelve subdivisions, and that's gonna be our our notes and not a lot of people like realize that when it comes to guitar because 
in order to keep the, the frets flat and easy to manufacture, some of them just aren't in tune. So if you, if you don't adjust your intonation to at least make most of them in tune, then you're just going to be in a world of hurt when it comes to recording because if shit's out of tune, it doesn't sound good. The waves have to be moving together to sound good. Tons of stuff to think about when it comes to setting up your guitar for that. Pickup height, big thing. Don't want it too high because a lot of people say that the magnets can pull the strings. I don't really, like in kill sustain, that, that's not, it doesn't have that big of an effect. Having it too close to the strings can have an effect on feedback and like chirpiness. Like if you're doing like a chug or something, it could like kind of ring or a little bit something because it's like kind of feeding back because it's too close to the source. And just pull it back a little bit, experiment with it. You get a brighter sound for sure if you move the pickup toward the strings, but there's, I mean, there's trade-offs to it. Something interesting that a really good guitar tech I used to work with in the studio would do is he would set it up depending on the area that you were going to be playing. In. Yep. Because, you know, guitar is not perfect. Even when you've intonated it, like, it's never going to be perfect. So are we doing riffs? Are we doing leads? Like, what are we doing? Yeah, a lot of the time you'll, you'll like, tune the guitar. Like, if you're doing, like, a lead, right, and you want a string dampener on it, you can't open tune it with a string dampener on it. So a lot of the time you can tune it to the, like, gently fret the 12th fret, tune that, do that all the way up to guitar, and you'll find that you have better results if, like, say you scan your, your done part after you've tuned like that into auto-tune or something with a graphical display of pitch over time, you can you can see how like the results change. Because if you tune just the open strings, like, okay, those are going to be in tune, but if your nut position is wrong, as soon as you fret anything, it's going to be wrong. So like that's why intonation is so important, because your open strings have to match your fretted strings. And the saddle is an absolute. You could put the sharpest saddle on earth on the bridge, and if the string is too thick to wrap around it at the at its fulcrum point, then that's not its fulcrum point anymore. So you have to adjust it. So your string gauge changes, you have to re-intonate. You change anything, re-intonate, check it. I once recommended that guitar players who record, especially, but just guitar players, get a beater guitar mm-hmm. to practice set setups with so that they don't ruin their good guitars before they know how to do anything. But yeah, you should have a guitar tech if you can afford one that you really, really trust, Luthier or something that you really, really trust. But like, even if you do, you're not always going to have access to them. Like they're not going to just be able to show up at three in the morning and solve all your problems. Like you should have a basic amount of knowledge to where you can do the things that we've been talking about here. Like don't need to know how to build guitars or like uh, fix frets or something. Basic intonations and truss rod stuff and action. like. I think everyone should know. Everyone should know about the truss rod. <laughs> so too many people have come up to me and said, why, why is my guitar buzzy? And I'll look at it and the neck is totally like sad face. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> let me teach you a little something real quick. Just turn this thing here and you'll be fine. And not a lot of people notice that. They're like, how, how could my guitar just all of a sudden, you know, twist? And I'm like, oh, it's because it's made with wood and wood has pores and moisture comes in and out of it. And when that happens shit twists it there's internal stresses in the grain like there's a million variables with that i mean tech technology is getting better now to where like they're using torrified wood where they cook all that moisture out of it and like the sap and the resins inside the wood fill all those voids and it's more homogenous than before 
so it doesn't let moisture in or out so it's kind of just going to stay where it is for the most part that's why the roasted neck thing is so popular because that's what the that is they they heat it up to a point where they boil those saps and everything but they pull all the oxygen out of the area that they're heating it up so it physically cannot burn and when that happens it just cooks it and then it just becomes this beautiful like it's brown like all the way through like you'd see a roasted neck how it's darker it's dark like that all the way to the center of the wood because it physically changed state and it's actually more brittle to to work with so it, it's more prone to like chipping and stuff but it's not it's always it's not, a trade-off yeah yeah you're right you're right but i mean in working it it's more prone to chipping but it's still pretty hard shit it's more durable than it was before but just definitely don't you know, try to break it over your knee or anything. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try not to. <laughs> uh, that, that's, I, I test every one of my guitars like that to see <laughs> if they stand the break or the knee test. I was testing its durability. The <laughs> old happy Gilmore. I mean, if it breaks, it's not, not worthy of keeping. Yeah. I was building a guitar one time and I was gluing the fretboard on and I didn't have the right clamps. So I had these like plastic band clamps that I bought from Stumac that I was like, oh, this is going to be sick. It was like one of the first ones I tried to make. And I glued it together. I like the truss rod was already in the neck. So like that was a thing. And I, I glued it, went to bed, came out and I was like, oh, it's, it looks awesome. And then I looked and there's like, it's totally not awesome. There's like voids and shit in it. I got so mad. I just snapped it over my knee <laughs> at the truss rod and everything. I was like, God, it gets so frustrating. I can imagine that learning how to do uh, learning how to do that comes with a lot of frustration and a lot of fuck ups. Yeah. Well, for the most part with, uh, with the guitar building, a lot of the work's done in the computer for me. Like, um, my dad's a, a robotic engineer, automation engineer to be specific. So he, he's like working on the robots that build cars and like build things in factories. So I've been around that shit my whole life. I mean, the hurdle is learning how to draw in CAD. This isn't like a huge surprise, I guess. Though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Learn to draw it first. You have to learn to tech draw in CAD. And then once you draw your guitar, then it comes to CAM operations, which is like machine computer-aided machining. So that says like, okay, this square, I want the, the mill bit to go on the inside of it. And I want it to go a half inch deep. You know, so like you, you select a, a region, you drive the bit around it, and the computer fills in all the gaps. So like in, in the real world, if I were like a hand luthier, I would have to make a template or buy a template somewhere that's probably CNC cut already, and then run a router inside that shape when, you know, you could have just told the computer to do it. But it's a lot of it's like computer knowledge and like making sure you know the machine and like you're not going to, you know, try to cram a half inch diameter bit into a radius that needs to be really tight or something or there's there's tons of like ways to fuck up like i've i have a pile of them in my garage that I, they're just sitting there reminding me that i once sucked at doing that <laughs> i i'm sure that's it's probably a good thing i know that building and setting up are two different things but do you think that guitar players who are looking to learn how to set up should get a beater just because they could possibly fuck it up? Well, yeah. I mean, if like, if you're trying to like do a fret job or something, don't try it on your, your new guitar. Like, I mean, just basic truss rod stuff. You could fuck up your guitar. Yeah, you could. But I mean, you just have to know that you can't turn that thing like it's a, 
like it's a bolt. Like it's, <laughs> it's happened to me that not, I didn't do it, but like, I remember some band, not going to say who came to the studio in Florida once and the bass player was a good bass player. He made a big deal out of telling us that he knows how to set up guitars and basses. And, uh, he fucking annihilated a Warwick. Oh yeah. Separate the fretboard. It like started to kind of like pull itself apart almost. And Mm -hmm. he twisted it so hard that like it was not movable anymore. Like it was fucked. That was that. Yeah. That's the, the, the two, two hitter quitter. You, you turn the rod base. Yeah. I mean, it's fixable. I mean, but it's, it's kind of hard. And like, if you didn't snap the, the fretboard wood, you can steam it off, replace the rod. And if, as long as you didn't crack, make any gnarly cracks in it, you should be fine. But I mean, yeah, there's mistakes that can be made, especially if you tighten it too much for one, you're going to strip the nut, which makes it impossible to get off. And two, it's going to stick like that. It's going to stay tightened. So you're never, ever going to be able to get it set up right again. So at that point, it's, you kind of have to like steam off the fretboard and take the rod out completely. So there was an operation that could be performed, but yes, but for all intents and purposes, the base was fucked. No, like yeah, that, like without unusable. emergency surgery. Yeah. yeah, you can't you can't fuck with that, if, especially if it's in the in the re- relief territory. You're gonna you're gonna sharpen the string before it even hits the fret at that point, and that's bad. Then you're really not gonna be in tune. Do you set up guitars for your clients? Well, a lot of my clients like know what they're doing a little bit, like when it comes to setting the guitars up. So I'll, I'll let them do it. And if if I notice something that's off, I'll fix it. But I kind of like to see how people like their shit set up before I intervene. Just because sometimes it could be something that's minuscule. And like, if it's more comfortable for them to play it like that, then so be it. Like, we'll do it like that. But I definitely don't let any detrimental things fly. Like no fret buzz, no, you know, I've had times when I've recorded, I don't know if you've seen those tunematic bridges where they have like two slots in the saddle. Like yeah, I've seen like it be in the wrong saddle and me not notice and be like, son of a bitch. Like, how did I not notice that? Cause you're human. Yeah. There's all kinds of things that I like to look over before we record, but I like to kind of let them do it if they know what they're doing. If not, I'm, I'm glad to pick it up and do it. Have you noticed sometimes people will get these like boutique guitars that are super fucking expensive and they're just kind of fucked up. (laughs) Like they have all these problems like that you don't see on like cheaper guitars that are maybe aren't as prestigious, but yeah, like ESPs or something like something like that. Yeah. Uh, You don't see those problems on those mass made guitars. Yeah. And then it's, there's the boutique, boutique guy is kind of, I don't want to say new because it, the guy could have been doing it for years, but I mean, he's definitely not as knowledgeable as ESP. Like, and there could be something like small that, uh, like as, as small as like, a you know, the fret ends or something like not, not doing the fret ends in a way to where they're not going to, you know, have burrs on them or something. Um, it could be a sanding error. It could be. I mean, handmade guitars are prone to that because it's really easy to fuck something up when you're by hand. Like if everything goes right with a CNC, you're not going to fuck shit up because it's a, it's a goddamn robot and it's made to do one job and it's going to do it right every time. As long as you put the, the code in right. 
Yay, robots. Yeah. A lot of handmade stuff can have some like quirkiness to it, like maybe a gouge here or there, or maybe like, I mean, it could be like wood drying practices. People who don't understand how to like, or why it's important to dry your wood, you know, get the moisture out of it so it doesn't twist or like certain ways of orienting necks, like in a, in a neck laminate, like for example, if you have like a billet for your neck, it's, it's kind of a good idea to, to make cuts in it and turn the middle one upside down because if there were ever an internal stress in that wood that was going to let go and make it curl one way, when you flip that upside down, you effectively kind of phase cancel that curl out because the wood is still going to want to curl, but since you turned it upside down, it's going to curl the other way and they're not going to curl because it's like phase canceling each other out. You know, the energy moves one way and then you have this counteracting thing in the middle. So there's, there's things like that, little tricks like that, that I'm sure a lot of the boutique guys miss out on because they're not, you know, they haven't been in business for hundreds of years, like ESP or Gibson or someone like that. How did you learn all this stuff? Internet, trial and error. I learned everything on the internet. Like the fact that schools don't have a self-education class drives me insane because any effectively everything that I do, I've learned on the internet. Man, the internet is, is the way to learn. Yeah. It's such an unbelievable resource. Like if you actually want to learn something, there it is. There's like no excuse for not learning how to do something. Yeah. And, and if you don't understand the terminology, Google it, <laughs> like figure out what it is. So Google it is... You know, it's like a joke and a meme, but like for real? Yeah, it's not. It's like the world's centric library. Like you can, you could, any information you want, literally anything you want is there. Might have to dig for it and dig through some bullshit. But if you've been doing it your whole life, you should have some sort of like sixth sense to spotting bullshit on the internet. And if it seems fishy, then you can, you know, cite sources or compare it against what other people say about it. And you'll find your general consensus and, Put it into practice, and if it works, there you go. You've learned it. I have a rule where uh, I try to not ever ask anybody a question. I could just Google. Yeah. Because when people ask me questions that they just they could just Google, I'm wondering like why. Like first of all, this is taking longer. You could have already had the answer. Second of all, why are you making me do this when <laughs> you could have just had the answer? Am I your slave? Yeah. Like seriously. Like what? What do you think this is? Like yeah. I try, like I'm not always successful. I try so hard not to, uh, not to ask people those questions. I actually think that people really appreciate it when you don't ask them those questions. Yeah. That's why that site, let me Google that for you exists. And that's the funniest retort ever on the internet. Like it is one of the best for sure. When someone just asks something like, how many strings do guitars have? Like, or some, something weird like that. And you get the, let me Google that for you response it's so good because it just types it for you makes you feel dumb as shit and then you just have to sit there and endure it but you get your result you get your result but i just wonder why people don't just do that there will be questions that people ask me like what else has this mixer worked on why don't you check mm -hmm. yeah how hard is it to check why don't you check yeah i mean well i mean there are exceptions to that too because if like if i asked you 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 might know sooner before that's different i mean like in a facebook group or something oh yeah 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 definitely some people are wrong too like and that they could just be so sure of themselves on the internet and then be just completely wrong and just potentially ruin a bunch of people's perception 
because they're wrong and so sure of themselves that they aren't. Yeah, that's the thing you do need to be careful about with the internet, on social media especially. You have to be very, very mindful of what you believe. So like if you're in a Facebook group or something, you know, like the URM group or just a Facebook group that's based on a community seeking knowledge on something, that's great and all. You should always be mindful of who it is that's answering your question because if it's an expert, that's great. You know, if you ask a question the URM group and Josh Wilbur answers it, well, pretty much trust that it's going to be a good answer. Or if you answer the question, you know that it's going to be a good answer. But like there's sometimes groups or scenarios where someone asks like a question about like one outboard compressor versus another and then a bunch of people who have never used either will start commenting yeah well the plugin does this <laughs> <laughs> my plugin doesn't do what you're saying you're you're lying i'm sure it's the same in guitar groups well yeah it's it's a lot of people with the same goal in mind and everyone has different experiences and comes up with different conclusions so they they could you know potentially be some misinformation going on out there. But when it's something factual, it's always better to just double check it on the internet because the answer is there. It definitely is. What do you want to bring to the world with guitar building that you feel like like isn't there? Like what makes you want to do it? First and foremost, the guitars have to be amazingly well playable and they have to sound good because you can innovate all you want, but if a thing sounds like trash and it's trash what's up with people who forget that when they make new guitars i think they just get they're blinded they they they're too obsessed with finding something that sets them apart from everybody else and they don't, don't realize that the one common thing in all the successful guitar builders is that they sound and play good like that's the two main reasons why you would buy a guitar why would you yeah. buy a guitar that doesn't play i mean it could be a art piece of art i've seen steampunk style guitars i was at nrg and they have a collection of thousands of guitars or some shit like that there. But he brought me out this one that was like, it was one of Jay's personal guitars and it was like steel made for, made out of steel. And it looked like, like an old steampunk, steampunk relic or something. It was heavy as shit. So cool for a nine inch nails video. Yeah. But like, it was very bright because from 1996, yeah, it was, it wound up super bright, not the best sounding, but it was really fucking cool to look at. And that just depends on what you're after. There are some people out there that build wacky, crazy art-inspired guitars, but that also play well, too. So, like, Rick Toon, for example, that his stuff is all, like, off-the-wall, insane, Some sometimes, like, cyborg-looking. But you still see people playing them because they're, they sound great and they play great. Like you can you can't forget about those two things. But I'm into cars, so, like, I, I look at the car market and, like, I can buy so much shit for my car to make it go faster, right? I can I can put turbos on it, I can do exhaust, I could build the motor, I can do all this shit. But with a guitar, the with current manufacturing standards, like you screw shit to wood, right? Not not the worst thing in the world, but it you kinda you're kinda stuck because once you paint the thing and there's holes in it, you can't really go back. Like with something like the Evertune comes out. Right. You have to totally fucking gut your guitar to make that thing fit in there. And there are downfalls to that, too. It, it kills sustain like a motherfucker. But the amazing thing about it is that it is it, it keeps your fucking thing in tune. Like it like you won't be chasing trying to record an octave and like just killing yourself because the guitar player is <laughs> microscopically pushing too much. And like it just 
it physically doesn't let it go out of tune because it it doesn't let the length of the string change and that's like a physics thing like the dude who invented that's really smart there's a trade-off like everything else with guitars there's a trade-off go ahead and ring a single high note out on the high e at the end of a song and see how long it lasts i challenge you (laughs) (laughs) but back to my original point that you won't be able to have that without destroying your whole guitar so i wanted to design a system where you know it's it's all modular like you can if you decide later on that you want to try the Evertune, well, and if you have one of my guitars, then I'll I'll get that for you. Like, and you could just couple bolts, pop it right in. There it is. You know, same with pickups, same with neck, same with scale length, same with string count, all that shit. I want it to be upgradable in the future, but I don't want it to be the focus of the whole thing. I just want, you know, like when when Leo Fender did the Strat, he did that. Like the pickguard came out, like. That was, a, that was a huge fucking thing. All the electronics and the entire guitar just come right out of it. I want to do that just more. You know, like I want the bridge to be changeable. I want the pickups to be changeable. I want the scale to be changeable. I want all these things to be changeable. But I don't want that to be like what sells it. I want that just to be an afterthought because at first the thing plays and sounds amazing, you know, and the aesthetics are there and it's and it's a, like a, a wonderful guitar off the rip, but you're able to change it later if you want. That's that's what I want to kind of bring. Yeah, so I feel like if all you could do was change those things out, but it didn't satisfy that plays great, sounds great, and aesthetically great criteria, then it would just be a gimmick guitar. Yeah, in a perfect world, I would market the thing and not even really say much about it being modular. Like, yeah, that's cool. And like, but I don't want it to be like, oh, the modular guitar... I want it to be like, this guitar is fucking amazing. It plays and sounds like like Jesus himself. And then also, you can change whatever you want. That's what I'm after. This guitar floats on water. Yeah, it does. This guitar is just divine. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you at with that? I, I mean, I got it to a point where it's functional. Like all the pieces go in and out. Uh, I've been using it. I used it on the I Am Abomination record the whole time. You know, the biggest thing is is money, dude. Like... Patents are expensive as shit, and I don't really want to, like, put what I'm doing out there on the internet or, like, start selling them until I'm protected. But then again, like, even if I am protected and a company decides to rip me off, I don't have the money to fight them in court. If Ibanez sees it and wants to do it. Yeah. Like, what's this? Like, am I going to sue them? Okay, let me let me pull out my nest day real quick and go gung-ho on a court lawsuit with Ibanez. Like, that's not going to... I lose in that scenario unless I just, you know, come out with it publicly and, and that's, that's called prior art. And once you do that, it's no longer patentable by anybody because it's been released into the public as, you know, prior art. So you can't obtain a patent for it anymore. I don't really care about patenting it. I just don't want, you know, myself to be, I don't want to invent the thing and then get screwed over because all these big companies are doing it first to market usually wins. So you have to, that's the thing, like getting it to market. Like, do I do like a, like a overseas production and let them see it and see what they want to do with it? Or do I just do it all myself? That's what I'm doing now. Like I have a small wood shop. It's in my dad's garage. It's nothing special, but I have that and I'm building a couple right now. We did um, Dime Abomination crowdfunding. We actually raffled a guitar off and... It was like the same model as what I have now. 
but it's going to be custom built for this guy. One his name is Gary Singleton. Gary. You know, you know, Gary? No. <laughs> oh, oh. Just shout out to Gary Singleton. Gary is a good guy. Man, what if I do know him and I don't know that I know him? So I am, <laughs> my apologies, Gary. Oh, he's a great dude. Love Gary. But yeah, we're going to be working on that in December, I think. That's the next time I have time. Yeah, like I'm going to do that one. And then if I get some time, like I'd love to take some commissions and stuff. But as far as like the whole crazy modular thing, it's... I don't really know what to do at this point because if I release what it is, I can't patent it ever. And I can't patent it unless I have like ten, twenty thousand dollars. So pickle. That's that's where I'm at. Gotta sell some guitars then, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Sell some non modular ones first and then rip into this. Someone with money could just see it and uh make their own version. That's why it's that much more important for yours to Sound great, play great. Yeah, hundred percent. And I'm still working on that. Like I, I, throughout the years, I just teach myself like all these different things, like building guitars. Like there's a million things that could go wrong, and it's all about intaking all of everyone's experiences on forums and on websites, and just trying to like catalog that and make sure you don't do it. Because if you don't like, the best way to learn something is to make a mistake. So, like for example. First time I tried to cut a guitar, I, I fucked up the Z0 on the CNC. And so what that is, it, it, it thought that the bottom of my stock, which is like your, your billet that you're cutting something out of, like your piece of wood, it thought that it was somewhere where it wasn't. So it went like full depth and just started chewing through the wood that I just bought. And I was like, no. So like if I would have known, you know, to pay attention to that, then I would have not made that I haven't made that mistake since well you know now yeah yeah it's just one sixty dollar piece of wood later better to learn it on the sixty dollar piece of wood than like well into the build yeah yeah because you're gonna you're definitely gonna feel it a little more I mean if it hurts the more it hurts the more you'll remember it well so first of all I'm glad you're still going with it because I, I know that uh I know this is a project you've been working on for a long time and I think that uh I think a lot of people don't realize when trying to like learn to do something like this or they're trying to do something innovative, one of the things that makes people quit is not realizing how long this shit's going to take. Oh, yeah. Years and years and years and years. And that's that's just part of the deal. The shit does not happen quickly. So I'm glad to hear that like still going. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not as not as fast as I'd like it to go, but because I have been really busy with... It's never as fast as you'd like it to be. Yeah, I'm really busy with the production stuff, which is amazing. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to even have that career. So, like, to, I don't really want to put that on hold just to, you know, do the guitar thing. But finding the balance is something I'm still trying to get. But I'd love to just, you know, do three, four records a year and then build guitars and do anything else that I'd like to do. But... You know, because I'm passionate about both things. So I, I definitely, and they, they, they can coexist. The more I advance in a production realm, the better chance they'll have at, as they come out, you know, because more eyes and the right eyes. Yeah, exactly. The right eyes and also the right eyes with the right opinion. Mm -hmm. Like the more you advance, the more they'll take you seriously. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's just a natural thing that seems to happen. I listen to Elon Musk. No matter what crazy shit he says, he's, he's a smart man. 
I listen to him even even when he's saying crazy things. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you're just like, oh, okay, Elon, how much weed did you smoke today? Or how much acid did you drop? Uh, yeah. How much how much DMT did you smoke last night, dude? Or I heard some of those are ambient tweets too. Oh, yeah. That might as well be acid. Yeah. It's very similar from what I understand about it. Yeah. Like you, you take the ambient and just wait and then you just get fucked. Yes, uh, I can I can confirm I've taken it. What it does is it kicks your brain into a dream state. And so oh, cool. a lot of, the, not really cool. Uh, it, I mean, it could be cool, but not really. Yes, could be terrifying too. Huh? Could be terrifying. And the thing is like, you don't, you know, the part of your brain that records memories is off when you're dreaming and it's yeah. off when you're on Ambien. And so- you get amnesia. Uh, so you don't That's remember crazy. what you did, but you do crazy things. I mean, like, you know, uh, Tiger Woods, when he got in trouble and he like crashed his car into a tree in front of his house, like yeah. when his life unraveled for that minute and stuff, he was on Ambien when he did that. Damn. Roseanne, when she got herself canceled, tweeting all that, she was on Ambien. Like, there was a senator who drove his car into a guardrail at like three in the morning once he was on Ambien. Like some people just take it and like draw funny pictures and laugh all night. Other people mm -hmm. do some seriously dangerous shit and then don't remember any of it and don't understand how the car got there in the first place. Some Wolf of Wall Street shit with the Quaaludes. Yeah. <laughs> he, yeah exactly. he makes it home all perfect. And then the next day his car's smashed. What a good scene. Man, Leo's a beast. He's never done a bad movie. Name one. Well, I've never seen The Beach. Oh, that's a great movie. Is it's it? kind of, I mean, it's it's low on the totem pole of Leo's movies, but it's pretty cool. It's like a that's like a 2002, 2003 movie. Okay, so if there's not that, then I don't know. Like uh, hmm. That's the one about like the cr the crazy like body of water that's like super clear and they like go there. So The Beach? Yeah, it's The Beach. It's <laughs> I forget the the actual content of the movie, but I remember watching it and not thinking it's like they go to the beach. Yeah, they go to the beach and then some crazy shit happens. It sounds like a plot to a movie. Yeah, it sounds like LA. Just go to the beach, crazy shit happens. What's Corona like for you guys? Uh, you're in Michigan, and I saw that Michigan is going insane with Corona right now. I mean, it's definitely up. Then the cases are up from where they were. So when it hit us, it hit us pretty hard in the beginning. My sister manages an ICU of Metro Detroit. It's well, it's technically Dearborn, but so like, I kind of use that as a gauge as to like how crazy it is. And I'll, I'll ask her like, Hey, how's it going? How are, you, how are you doing at work? And she'd be like, Oh, it's, it's, it's better. Or she'd be like, she won't even say anything to me because she's so stressed out. Now it's, I mean, there's been more people like getting sick and all that. And I mean, it, it's up and down. It's weird. It seems to be like, it's never going to go away unless it, there's a vaccine. Like it's, it's always going to be here, like floating around like the flu is, but it's, it's been, I mean, as far as most people outside are wearing masks, we don't get those like people who are just anti-maskers really. Life has seemed to return to somewhat normal. I mean, you can go, I think you can go to the movies now. We haven't been back, but you can, movie theaters have reopened. Um, I saw Tenet last week. How was that? Very interesting. Wait and watch it at your home. So you can watch it with subtitles. Oh, okay. Was it like a foreign film? No, no. It's a Chris Nolan movie. And do you like Chris Nolan movies? Oh, yeah. Definitely. 
It's Chris Nolan movie, probably the most complex one he's ever done, but the audio mix sucks. Uh. The dialogue is hard to understand and it's such a complex movie and the dialogue goes so fast and the, the concepts in the movie are already super hard to wrap your brain around. You have to think hard to be able to comprehend what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, a little bit of every Chris Nolan movie's weird thing put together in one super complicated package. Kind of amazing. It's genius. Yeah. However, you want subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take your advice on that and wait. I, I feel like if you could understand what they were saying, it would be 50% less confusing. Yeah, what is up with that, bro? Like Spotify has it figured out with the loudness like why why does the film world just it swings so wildly like i know people pay for that like the level of your commercial is like determined by how much you pay them but it's pretty intense to the point where i'll be watching like a show and the dialogue is so low like you always turn it up to where you can hear the dialogue at least right and then you'll just like pop over a different scene and it's just like swing so randomly like damn like they're not, I don't know, they, they maybe they just don't care. Maybe it's, you know, I got to chuck this show out and throw it. But, I mean, that shit, hurt, it hurts me. It hurts my ears sometimes. I'm just like, damn it. I, I want a compressor just strapped across my TV. I thought about that so many times. Just I agree. Now, what you're pointing out, though, is not the problem with this movie. This movie, it's not a matter of, like, uh, wildly different volumes and different scenes. And, like, and that problem that I hear in like every movie, this is literally, they muddied up the mix and then turned the dialogue down. And it's just inaudible. It's inaudible and a lot of it's backwards. So like, so it's just like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) I think it was a decision. Like it's, it's gotta be an artistic decision. It's gotta be. Confuse the masses. I think it's supposed to be like, I'm, I don't understand the decision. But like there's a line in the movie that says, don't try to understand it, feel it. And I have this feeling knowing how he makes movies that there's there's a point to why it, it can't be. For people that high level, how could they do something that's unintelligible like by accident? Yeah. They don't make those mistakes. Exactly. So it must be an artistic thing, right? But yeah, you just have to wait for the interview to figure it out. And make you watch it again or something? <laughs> yeah. Or they want you to turn it up so that... Dude, if you if you turn it up, it'll fucking blow out your speakers because the low end on it is insane. Yeah, that's that's a thing. That's like the, the contrast. Like horror movies have done that. They started using silence as a uh, suspense tactic, which totally works on me. I'm a total jumper when it comes to the scary movies, but I love them. But... They'll just there'll be zero sound for seconds and seconds and seconds, and then all of a sudden, just bam! And that contrast, I think, is what gets people. I can't handle that shit. Yeah, I I mean, I'm I'm with you, but I just fucking love it so much. Like, I love the feeling of being scared like that sometimes. But I'm more afraid of screaming like a bitch in front of everybody than I am <laughs> of the actual movie. Yeah, I don't I don't like jumping in front of people. <laughs> it's funny, like. Oh, look at him. He's scared. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, that's the point of the movie is to scare you. I just don't like that feeling of being scared. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's like, I don't like the feeling of getting pulled over. You know that like you see the cop lights or the cop bus you behind you and you're like, fuck. Yes, I don't you like that, that either. feeling, <laughs> the sinking, like stressy feeling. 
I swear I didn't kill anyone and there's no body in my trunk, but why do I feel like there's a body in my trunk right now? <laughs> yeah. Like I'm usually speeding. That's probably the problem, but um, like you can't help but get it. You know, like that sinking kind of crazy feeling it sucks. Why do people get that? Especially like people who have no reason to feel that. I've, could always, be I've always wondered that. But yeah, could be. Could be just like an instinctual thing. My kid does shit that I just like, she'll just randomly have mannerisms that I'm like, who taught you that? And like, how did you learn that? It's crazy. She's a year and two months old and she's already like developing. I feel like there are things built into our brains at a young age, just certain things that we don't think about that are just there. You know, it's kind of scary, but it's, it's wild. Well, I know that as a kid, uh, most kids, it was for me too. Um, most kids are afraid of getting in trouble, even though mm -hmm. getting in trouble as a kid, like, what does that even mean? You don't actually get in trouble as a kid, but just the idea of getting in trouble was bad enough. Like that yeah. would scare the shit out of me and lot, everyone I knew didn't want to get in trouble. So I think it kind of stems from that. Like the, uh, even if you intellectually know that, I mean, speeding ticket, you got in trouble, but you're not really in trouble. Yeah. You're paying on your insurance is what, it, what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, it, it sucks, but it's not yeah. something to be scared of. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. It's inconvenient. It's annoying, but scared. That's a different, that's a different feeling. Like, what are you scared of? Now I understand for some people there's legitimate things, but like for me and you, not really. So I think it stems from that feeling of not wanting to get in trouble as a kid, just the adult, the adult version of it. Exactly. Yeah. You want your life to keep going as is smooth roller coaster, no hiccups. And you don't want the the police officer to come and harass you yeah. about whatever it is that you're doing. Usually like I always freak about, freak out about like if I have weed on me or something like that. I'm like, but now it's completely fucking legal in my state and I still freak out about it. Like stop, <laughs> stop my brain from doing this. It's hard, man. When did it become legal? Oh, a few years ago. Last, I think it was 2016 election, actually. So you went 26 years. I doubt you were smoking when you were five, but um. <laughs> so you went like a decade or something of fearing the police with it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that a lot of people below a certain age will never understand how shady it was to have to buy weed. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that's something that's like is in history now. Yeah. And also they're fucking spoiled because the weed they have is just incredible compared to what we used to have to find, Find, you know, like the Mexican brickweed, the stems and the bugs and fucking seeds and shits. They just literally take the whole plant and just crush it into a brick and chip it across the border and say, here, and then you got to like sift through it. That was, that was not a good time in marijuana's history, but I mean, now it's getting pretty wild. Yeah, it is wild. It's scientifically engineered super weed. Like I remember when I went to Berkeley, this guy I was friends with was buying some weed for me and some friends and he found a dealer. This was so sketchy, but the dealer had this whole phone protocol, of course. And then he was going to basically pull up at the front of Berkeley and he's supposed to get in the car with this stranger and then just drive around. And it's like, he took a screwdriver just in case. It's like, fuck that. Just get in a car 
with like some random drug dealer and then let them drive you? Like, are you crazy? It's crazy shit. Now you can just go to the store and buy it. It's like an Apple store. Yeah. Just, oh, we got, we got all these weeds here. We got some concentrates, some edibles. You got any parents? Your parents will love the edibles. Damn. Holy shit. It's, it's surreal almost. It is really, really weird. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of it. I'm a fan too. So first of all, going to prison or jail for that is really dumb. And second of all, being 16 and putting yourself in those really sketchy situations just to get weed is also really dumb. Like you avoid avoiding both of those things. It's, it's good. It's a better world that way. Oh, hundred percent. It's kind of like hesitant of me to say that all drugs should be legal. Cause there are some that I don't think anyone should <laughs> even ever fuck with a meth. Yeah. A little heroin, a little meth, a little crocodile, whatever the fuck that shit is. Flocka. Yeah. That's just like bottom of the barrel scrape. Someone's experiment that went, went wrong. And now they're just like, oh, we can, we can sell this. We can make some money on this. You've watched the crocodile videos too. Yeah. It's horrible. So what kind of evil does it take to make that and then think, all right, I'm going to sell this to people? Dude, I think it's it's in like Ukraine, Russia, it's like Soviet area where it's going on, right? Yes. So Life's rough to begin with. Yeah, it is. And the, they're making it with gasoline. And from what I understand, most of the people who do it make it themselves. And they, they do that because they can't afford heroin or whatever else they're doing. Dude, that shit literally rots your fucking flesh. It, it yes. is so gnarly to see, like, people in the hospital bed, like, alive. But they have, uh, their bone is just sitting there and they have no tissue because it's gone. It's rotted away. It started to dry up. And their just dry-ass bone is just sitting there just chilling. And you're, you're like, oh, how could you do that to yourself? It's, it's insane. Kind of defies comprehension. I feel like Crocodile is on the same level. It's like the, it's like the Eastern European version of flaca or something or bath salts or those, that level of drug that just like there's, so meth is terrible, but, uh, but you hear about people recovering from meth and mm -hmm. stuff. Don't do meth, but uh, <laughs> do not do meth. Don't do meth. <laughs> and it, it, meth is one of the worst drugs on earth and people do recover from it, but there's a step worse. Yeah. And it's those drugs like bath salts and flocka and crocodile and flocka. Yeah. So I feel like flocka is the American version. Like, so what, what I wonder is, okay, I understand that there's, that addiction is a real thing. Um, nobody means to get themselves addicted to a drug. It's not like they're doing heroin because they want to die from it. Like that's not the way yeah. that shit works. They're addicted. I get it. And I get that with heroin and stuff or meth, sometimes people get tricked into trying it, not tricked into like, not, not like faked into trying it, but like, uh, persuaded, persuaded and conned. Mm -hmm. There was someone who tried to get me to do heroin once. And the whole, like the dude's sales pitch was, oh, it's not as bad as people say it is. Those are just people who can't handle it. Like it's fine, dude. <laughs> Th this guy ended up losing everything he had within really? two years. Yeah. But, 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 and you've heard of people recovering heroin. What is it that inspires somebody to take a drug like Flocka where you don't even hear about like, you hear about why heroin feels good to people, but with Flocka and stuff, like what makes you do that? I'm assuming it, most of the time it's by mistake. <laughs> Like, or like something's laced with something. 
Yeah, someone someone cut it with something. So like, oh, I got this shit that I can throw in the bag that's gonna fuck them up. But you know, they're just gonna think it's that other shit. You know, there's no real market for drugs that just make you insane. I mean, people want to feel the way they want to feel and do whatever drug they want to do. But yeah, you're right. There's no there's no reason to do flaca or to yeah. do crocodile unless like I understand why people do meth. I understand why they do heroin, but I don't understand what it is about dancing like a zombie and like, that <laughs> yeah. that's appealing. Yeah, or what about that fucking drug scopolamine, dude? That shit. I'm not familiar with that one. It's like a white powder comes out of some like crazy nut in South America. That sounds interesting. Yeah, apparently it eliminates all free will. So if I came up to you and I blew a little bit of this in your face, I could then tell you to go to your ATM and pull out all your money and give it to me and you would do it. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. It's like, it's like the hustle drug, apparently. Like, and they, they get tourists with it and all it takes is one little, you know, blast of it in your nasal cavity and you're fucked. And you're just, you don't remember, like you get amnesia, you, you just don't remember shit. But it's that scary as fuck. Ooh, figure that one out. I have no idea. Some it's grows. It's some nut or something in South America. So I saw it on Vice somewhere. Vice had this uh, Hamilton's phar- Pharmacopia show for a while. It's like that one dude. Yeah, I watched a few of those. Yeah, he goes around <laughs> and just like does drugs. Yeah, different crazy toads and shit, and ayahuasca, all that stuff. I'm afraid of psychedelics. Yeah, I, I, I share that fear, but I've tried them. I've tried them too, but not for a long time because I got scared of them. Yeah, I mean, I'm more scared of what it's going to do to my outlook. What if it changes the way I think about things and that, and I don't like that, you know, and for the worse. Interesting. Everyone says it's going to change your whole life. It's going to change the way you look at the world. And I'm like, oh, what if I don't want What if I like the way I look <laughs> at the world? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Okay, so I didn't think about that. That's actually an interesting thing to think about because... Uh, yeah, what if I don't want my brain rewired? The reason I'm afraid of it is just because I feel like uh, what these things do is they amplify a lot of how you're already feeling. I don't need like all the all the stuff that I keep in check through habits and like through knowing how to keep them in check. I don't need that bad shit just like unleashed. Mm-hmm. That sounds bad. Yeah, it's like a work in progress keeping my brain under control and uh, just basically releasing the floodgates because that's what they do. No, thank you. Yeah, like my my trip would probably just be metronomes and people playing like just before the point of editing and like just auto-tune guitars, <laughs> like all this fuck shit. That sounds like a rough 12 hours. Yeah, and they last way too long, too. That's another thing. Yeah, that's the that also, just like, because that would stress me out. Like, the idea of, all right, so there's 11 more hours of this shit? Yeah. I microdosed acid before, and that is like... What was that like? Amazing, actually. Like, you'd have to take a blotter and cut it into tiny, tiny pieces, but I felt like I had HD vision, and, like, I could hear everything better and, like, see and... Sm- it, it heightens your senses... I had no visuals, you know, no, no, no tracers. So is it kind of like just enough? A microscopic amount, tiny little piece of paper. And like it, it put me in an amazing mood. I was very happy all day. And I can, I can see why people are talking about microdosing as like a medicinal treatment for PTSD and anxiety, because if, if they, you know, reined that in and got the dosage right, I think that it could help a lot of people. But it's just so sketchy to like, I mean, one drop of that could just totally fucking 
ruin your whole day, maybe even your week. Yeah, ruin your whole two or three days. Yeah, there was a dude, like a DEA guy, who did this big LSD bus. He was undercover, and he had this long beard. And then he shaved his beard the day of the the bust so he could like go in there all clean. And he, they went into the lab and there was so much LSD around, like in open vats, that he absorbed the LSD through his pores, his freshly Whoops. shaven pores. And he is vegetative right now. He cannot, he is a vegetable because he took, he was like the equivalent of taking like two or 3,000 hits of acid at one time. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's insane. Totally fucked, but I, I mean that's why imagine. it's like, and you never know who's making it, and it's there's a there's a lot of risks involved when you're dealing with something that's currently le- illegal. Don't do street drugs, kids. Yeah, don't do it. There's a level of danger with street drugs that wasn't there when I was in college or whatever. From everything I'm hearing from people that work in the medical community and friends of mine, like it's just fucking risky as hell to try street drugs. And it's because of what you said, because of what people cut things with. You just don't know. And maybe you didn't know before, but like stuff wasn't getting cut with like fentanyl before. Oh yeah. That, I don't understand that. Like why, if you have something that like can get like to kill 10 dudes, it's like one tiny little piece. Why are you even putting that in your, in your heroin? Like maybe it's cheaper. I don't know. Maybe that it's easier for them to get. And like, it makes the shit more effective, but that just never made sense to me. It feels like like a sabotage, you know, of your of your client base at that point. I mean, it kind of is. Yeah. People see someone dying on the type of heroin that you're getting and then they're just like, oh, I need that. That's the good shit. Such a crazy way to think. What I've heard is that the same batch, when it's spiked with that stuff, will have different amounts distributed in different places. So two people can take a dose and one will die and one will be fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like oil, like marijuana oil and edibles, wherever oh, the oil per, like settles. Like if you make butter or something, usually they, it gets spread out, but you can just mix like the oil form, the BHO oil with uh, like coconut oil or something and then use that to, to bake. Like sometimes one cookie is just the hot load, dude. <laughs> like <laughs> you'll eat like you'll have some like normal like 50 mil, 100 milligram cookies and then just one big mac daddy thousand milligram one that you're just like whoever eats it's going down like that's why i i take a nibble of an edible first and i I give it an hour and see what happens and then then i'll face the whole thing if if it's you know i determine that it's safe i'm paranoid with edibles i'm super super sensitive to them dude edibles will fuck you up way worse than smoking any amount of weed will it's crazy i don't take more than two milligrams two Wow. Two. Yes, two. So is that like one chocolate chip? Yeah, basically. Like one little piece of a gummy. Dude, I'm super sensitive to it. And uh, the thing is, I think I have that genetic component where it makes me stressed out. Like, uh, you know how some people get paranoid and others never do? Yeah. That's a genetic thing, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, it could. It also could be a strain thing. I know like a lot of people like talk about like, oh, try this strain. It's going to make your eyeballs go sideways. And for sure, it's going to happen every time. Some people get way too crazy with it, but I have a firm belief that like some weed makes me just think about my bills way too much. Like I'll be like, (laughs) what am I going to do? I'm like responsibilities. I'm just sitting here all like not enjoying being high, just like freaking out about life. And I'm like, wait, I wasn't freaking out like this like an hour ago. What's happening? But yeah, I've definitely had weed that's done that to me before. But for the most part usually just a, you know, pretty relaxing vibe. 
see, it's almost never a relaxing vibe for me. So yeah. um, I have to keep it to like two milligrams or one milligram, which is crazy because like my ex-girlfriend weighs 105 pounds mm-hmm. and she could take like 50 milligrams and just have a good time. Different people. Yeah. More than twice her size at that point in time. Well, more like three times her size and uh, could only take one or two milligrams. So there's got to be a genetic component. That's what I've heard. And yeah, sorry if you're one of those people. (laughs) I'm jealous of you guys who just have a good time. (laughs) For sure. My friend Zach is like always like, oh, edibles don't work on me. And one time I tested it on him. I gave him 200 milligram gummies. I said, eat these right now. And he ate them and he was fine. And I was like, okay, like, I guess you don't fucking, you're not susceptible to edibles, dude. Like, whatever. Fine. Because he's like always talking about it. Like, he's like, ah, yeah, they don't work on me. This is, this doesn't happen. I'm like, how can that be? And you thought he was full of shit? Yeah. And then I put him to the test and he wasn't drooling all over himself. So I know that he was fine. (laughs) Yeah. So that's why you can never listen to what other people say when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You got to always figure this stuff out for yourself if you're interested in it and, uh, and never sway to peer pressure because the way something affects one person is not the way it's going to affect you necessarily. Mm -hmm. Nobody besides you is capable of judging that anyways from the outside so i think it's ultra important to just think for yourself and uh yeah like if you know that something affects you strongly or you're not into it don't worry about it yeah i have friends that never never smoke weed or anything because they get anxiety but it sucks because they're always getting peer pressured even at my age 30 years really? old. yeah there's like like ah come on smoke with us and like you're like no it makes me anxious and everyone like gangs up on him like come on dude i try not to do that because i i feel bad but yeah i mean certain people don't react well to drugs or marijuana whatever you know i haven't gotten the peer pressure thing in a long 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 time and i always wondered what that was it was like why do you care so much if someone else is doing this too there's tribal mentality to humans in general look at politics it's red or it's blue you know it's which team are you on right are you are you with us or are you without us? Like, there's like a, a a primal urge to just fit in. I think that a lot of people succumb to with that. Like, yeah, like you said, how does anyone just start doing heroin, right? No, but why does the other person, the one who's peer pressuring, why does that person care so much? Oh, misery loves company. Maybe that could be a thing. Yeah, something like that. Because um, I've always like whenever I've been peer pressured, I've always been like, why? Why do you care so much what I'm taking? Like you care a little bit too much about me taking this. Yeah, because maybe it makes them feel more normal the more people they see doing whatever they're doing. I know you're on a diet, but I'm having a piece of pizza. Why don't you have one too? Yeah, that's that's straight up sabotage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like actually being like, dude, don't eat it. No, for real. Like eat it. It's fucking good. And you're like, I know it's good. It's fucking, I'm fat. Leave me alone. Yeah, people will definitely try to sabotage that. It's, have you ever wondered why though? Like, uh, I have, and and I haven't quite gotten to the bottom of it other than I think sometimes they feel guilty about what they're eating and they don't want to feel guilty about it. So Mm. they'll, uh, try to get you to do it with them for their own guilt. Yeah. Basically. It's not like they want, well, some people do, but I think most people aren't trying to make you fail. They're trying to make themselves not feel so bad. Yeah. I think my my wife would 
because every time my me and my wife like try to do diets, I'm usually the one to be like, ah, I'm stressed out. I need to eat, you know. And then just me eating in front of her, it's like a whole thing. Like you don't want to, you know. She wants to eat now because of that, and so it's that's a thing. Definitely with dieting, you got to be careful with that. I think dieting is best done alone. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like if you could do it completely by yourself, that'd be even better. But being around like different types of food all the time is just hard to to even stay on track. Especially if if you get stressed out, and that's like how you one of your coping mechanisms for stress is to eat, which a lot of people it's the same thing. So you're pretty much screwed in that point because you're either stressed out all the time and hungry or not. You know, like you're you're or you do well. That's been one of the beautiful things about quarantine because uh, I ended up becoming single right before it and moving you know, away from this environment and the lockdown happened. And so just kind of by myself to a degree and able to not have any influences and just went for it. It was the first time in years that I could really, really, really focus. And uh, being alone was a huge part of it. Definitely. When you're left to your own devices, like you have no influences, positive or negative. So if anything goes wrong, it's you, right? At the end of the day, it's always you, whether you're alone or not. There leaves no doubt and no trace in your mind that the accountability falls on anybody but yourself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of like what you said with guitar playing earlier. If you want to get better, you have to practice. Like, uh, there's no way around it. Mm -hmm. If you want to move forward, there's, you have to, you have to do it. Yeah, there's no liposuction for getting better at guitar. No. (laughs) (laughs) Technology isn't there yet until they can install robot hands and shit like that. We're a long way off from that. You'd be surprised. Would I? Yeah. Have you seen something that I haven't seen? Think about it like this. Like if you have a drum kit mic'd up, right? You got your microphones on your kit. There's cables connected to it, right? Taking it to your interface. Mm-hmm. What if you just like fucking just kick the kit over, right? Chop your hand off. But the cables are still there. So if you can figure out a way to replug the cables in and put a new drum kit there, then you can figure out a way to get a new hand because they have... The, the nerves are like wires, right? And they mm-hmm. the, the thing that sucks when you lose a limb is you, they, they can't be amplified anymore because that's what your muscles do. So they they end up, I've seen it ways where they take these nerves and they reroute them to a muscle like your pec that's there, you know, and it works. And your brain, when you tell your hand to, you know, move out like that, like it knows, okay, this nerve has to do something. So they tap into that. And then they convert that energy. Well, it's already electrical energy in the nerve. They just get it out. They like put a probe in there, like a lead. And then you just convert that to a mechanical movement, like a finger moving. You know, the hardest part is that there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of nerves in there. And they have to, and if you're, depending on how mangled your arm is, will dictate how, you know, how, how it can be fixed. But the technologies within the next 10 or 20 years, there'll be full limb replacement with feedback and everything. So like when you touch something, you feel it, right? Like that's going to have to feedback into your brain, like where, you know, okay, I'm touching something, stop moving my finger. That's huge with guitar. Cause like you wouldn't have that with just like a, like a normal myoelectric hand. But if you have like when technology advances and they, they figure out how to tap into these nerves more and give your brain feedback. That's why I think Neuralink is so like interesting with Elon Musk. Cause he's just create. Like in terms that we can understand, he he's making an audio interface for your, your for your brain, like converting one type of energy to another, 
like converting electrical signals from your brain into digital data, which then they, they can look at and analyze and figure out, okay, what when this person blinks, this is happening in their brain. That means that this data trail does this. So what if we introduce this data trail and force them to blink? You know, like that's possible now because these successfully interface the brain with a computer, which is fucking crazy. Didn't he say that it's like a Fitbit for your brain? Yeah, really all it is is a way to communicate between a brain and a computer. That's it. Like there's, I don't know how many channels there are in his now, but like imagine being able to like actually know what the fuck's happening in your brain. Like if you're having a stroke, right? That computer will know because it knows what a stroke looks like based on data that they've collected over the years or whatever. And it will just, you'll eventually you'll be able to do it compute just like on a computer, but within, within your brain, like all that fucking black mirror shit is like not far away. Like the technological advancement in the past 100 years has like, if you look at it on a, on a chart, it's insane. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. The, the amount of shit that we've been able to create in the past, hundred years is just insane. It's like a hundred thousand years of nothing. And then like 10,000 years of a gradual curve. And then suddenly in the past hundred years, it's just like, boom. Digital is just a new language, right? It's like, it's a new way of converting data. And like, actually data is what came about in digital, like the, the way we think of data, but like being able to record your voice into a, your computer and have a hard drive that remembers what happened and play it back is kind of nuts and then manipulate it from there. Like that's not far away from human interface. That's just the, the biggest hurdle we have is morality with that. Right. Like we could clone people right now if we wanted to, but we're not doing it because it's immoral and it's very like, there's some gray areas when it comes to that. Like, what do we do with this extra person of me? Like, have you ever seen that movie, the prestige? Yep. Yeah. Where he just has to keep killing himself over and over yep. again. But, because he figured it out, like Tesla built on the cloner machine and he's just like, what do I do with myself? I, I don't know what to do. Drown myself. Yeah. Every and fucking keep... night. Like, yeah, insane. But I mean, it, it's not far away. Human brain interface is coming. I believe it. I do believe that it's coming. What I wonder is at what point will it be capable of doing things that require fine, fine motor skills and uh, artistic thinking? If you sat long enough, you could program a robot to do whatever you want on a guitar. I could program a robot to make it shred as hard as possible. The problem is... Well, improvise. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, that's AI. That That's like to write music. You'd have to teach it to learn. Like, that's the biggest thing with AI. You can't... Like, because everything that machines do are inputted by humans, at, like, at this time, for the most part. Like, the machine knows to take the bolt and move it. 0.63789 millimeters to the right, right, on that axis, and then move its other motor that pushes it down, point whatever the fuck, you, you know, whatever given data you have. Like, that's all it knows. And it does that every single time, and it does it great, and it, do, it doesn't fuck up unless it breaks, you know, some part of it breaks. But with humans, like, we got feedback. Like, we we push, push on a string. We If it's too hard, like, we know, because, you know, we feel it. We've, we feel all that stuff and we have input coming into our brain as well. So there's, there's a huge, huge way to go with it. But I mean, it, they're 
machines are pretty crazy right now. It's not as far off as you might think. It's not like 200 years off. I don't think it's going to be as far off as Back to the Future thought in 2015 was going to be, right? Or whatever year it was. Was it 2015? I think it was 2015. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that they, they kind of, there goes the, you know, the scale of our technology thing. I think if we made a Back to the Future today, it might wind up closer to where it is. Because we just, I think the things are, that are going to happen are probably going to be beyond our imagination at some point. Well, yeah, they have to be. Yeah, they're going to be just completely like foreign things that are, like imagine like an alien civilization visiting us and just blowing us out with their tech. You know, they got some fucking holograms. They got alien space weed. They got all of it. <laughs> Smoke this shit and time just starts going backwards. <laughs> uh, that's what happens in Tenet. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Damn. Well, they don't smoke something, then time goes backwards, but they figure out how to move backwards through time. That's crazy. But while the rest of the world is moving forwards through time. Wow. So the interplay between the two is just like too much. <laughs> yeah, you just kind of have like to have a graphical representation of time and like where they are and where everyone else is. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really, really hard to like uh, to understand. But anyways, man, I think it's a good place to end it. It's been a pleasure talking to you again. Awesome. Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Anytime. So that was another episode of the Riff Hard podcast. Thank you for listening. Brown will be back with us next time. If you want to get better at guitar, go to riffhard.com. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard podcast. We'll see you next week.